Good morning. It's uh, been a lot of fun for me to be here uh, with you guys this weekend, and I trust that our time together will be fruitful. My name is Nathan, and I did grow up in the wild and wonderful woods of West Virginia, and then rolled off the mountain to go to college, and I double majored in physics and philosophy, and then I like to say I got my physics and metaphysics tangled up and ended up with theology. So then my wife and I lived and studied in England and Texas and then in uh, Boston, Massachusetts. And for the last five years, I've been working uh, for RZIM. And I like RZIM's tagline, helping the thinker believe and helping the believer think. And so as we uh, talk about the book study that you'll be doing in your small groups, obviously I'm not Ravi and I'm not Vince. Uh, Neither of them were able to come when your church requested, but they gave me a call and said, hey, can you swing by and speak at this church to, to introduce this topic? And I was on my way home from somewhere else, and so this all worked out very well. But I thought what we would do in order to kind of give some background to the study that you're about to do is look at an interaction that Jesus had with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And this is in Matthew chapter 16, if you have your Bible device and want to be looking at that as we go through it. I'm not going to give you a a 20-minute book report of the book that you're about to spend six weeks studying. Don't worry about that. But I thought I would give some just background and some context to how we posture ourselves as we come to this study. And so to do that, let's start reading in Matthew chapter 16, and we'll start with verse 1. And so uh, Jesus, well, there's a lot that Jesus has been doing, but here we come. So it says in verse 1, one day the Pharisees and the Sadducees came to test Jesus, demanding that he show them a miraculous sign from heaven to prove his authority. And I think it makes a lot of sense that they would come to him and say, show us a sign, because really, up until this point, all that he's done is healed a leper, Healed a centurion servant, healed Peter's mother-in-law, healed a whole crowd of people, calmed a storm, cast out a demon, healed and forgiven the sins of a paralytic, raised a girl from the dead, given sight to the blind, made mute people speak, and fed 4,000 people. I mean, typical stuff, like you see down at the parking lot at Wawa. I mean, just everybody does this, right? And so the Pharisees and their Sadducees are like, come on, give us something. <laughs> what is it? What? I don't know. What did they want? Um, and then we want to see a sign in the heavens. And Jesus doesn't answer them. Instead, he replies and says, You know the saying, red sky at night means fair weather tomorrow. Red sky in the morning means foul weather all day. You know how to interpret the signs of the sky, but you don't know how to interpret the signs of the times. How many of you learned uh, the little phrase that's something like that? Red sky in the morning, sailors take warning. You learned that too? Yeah, I grew up in West Virginia. I have no idea why I needed to know that about sailors, but we learned that too. Uh, So for two millennia, We've been using this same little type of phrase to talk about, hey, we can understand the things in the sky. And Jesus uses the same, the same word sky there that they actually use for heaven. Same Greek word, maybe there's a bit of a play on words there as he says, hey, your problem isn't understanding what's happening in the skies. Your problem is understanding what I'm doing in this moment. Your problem is understanding the times that you live in. And this is a continuation of a conversation on the same theme from back in chapter 12 where they asked him the same question and he responded by saying, you know what, the people of Nineveh are going to rise up on the day of judgment and judge you. And the queen of the south is going to rise up on the day of judgment. She came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon speak and one greater than Solomon is here and someone greater than Jonah is here. And the outsiders, the people who didn't profess to be the people of God were the ones who got it. They had the capacity to see what God was doing and delighted in it but you guys are missing out on it. And so in the same way, he's, he's flipping that back around on them and saying, no, this isn't how this works. And this is one of the terrifying things about Jesus is that he has an extremely high view of our capacity to respond to evidence. He's like, I did my part, your move. 
And he believes that we can look at this and understand and make sense of it. And so he isn't going to continue to give us evidence if we aren't going to use the evidence that we already have. Why would he? And so for people who aren't open to being convinced by evidence, nothing can change that. Throughout history, throughout scripture, there's a very low connection between the amount of evidence in a system and the amount of belief there. Think of all the times that God showed up and spoke to Israel and they disbelieved him. Oh, I wish we had died in Israel. Wow, there's a pillar of fire guiding them through the desert. Um, it's crazy. At the end of Matthew, we see the same thing. Resurrected Jesus comes and shows up, and it says, and they worshiped him, and some doubted. I don't know how it gets any better than that, the resurrected Jesus standing right there. And so if we don't have the want to, to see a difference, to respond to the evidence, it isn't going to be there for us. So we can read the signs of the times, but if we aren't interested, or we can read the signs of the skies, rather, but if we aren't interested in understanding the time around us and responding to the evidence that we have, nothing is going to help us. But his critique there is that you don't understand the times in which you live. You don't understand what I'm doing. And so two things are happening here as you go into the study. One of those is it's an analysis of the signs of the times, but also it's a reminder of the person of Jesus Christ in the midst of that. The subtitle is The Countercultural Claims of Christ. It's how Jesus is different than all of these other isms that exist in the world, the things that speak to us. And so the book Jesus Among Secular Gods is helping us understand our times. Now, at the same time, the word secular in the middle of that book title is a bit interesting, and as the Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor has pointed out to us, the definition of secular has changed over the last several hundred years. So back in the Middle Ages, for example, if you had a secular job, that means you had a job that wasn't part of the church. You weren't a nun or a priest or a monk or anything like that. You had a secular job. You were a butcher, a baker, a candlestick maker, something like that. You were secular. Secular 2.0, he says, is the secular that most of us are familiar with, which is we talk about like a secular university or a secular public square, saying it's a non-theistic place. And maybe it even has a bit of a connotation of a hostility to theism or to religious belief. That's secular 2.0. And then Taylor's argument is that actually we've moved into secular 3.0, which is to say that secular 3.0 is about a, cult, a secular society that's based off of the proliferation of options. Everything is an option. It's just one option among many different options. And you guys know this is true just even from your consumer experiences. Uh, the example I like to use of this is your great-grandmother probably didn't have deep convictions and opinions about buying chicken eggs at the store. Now when you go to the supermarket, though, you have 47 different options of the compostability of the carton, what the chicken ate, what the chicken was named, what color the egg is, if a robot picked the egg, if it was handpicked by a little girl named Susie. I mean, you have options all over the place for that. When I got off the airplane, it used to be, here's your rental car. Now it's, choose from this row. How do, how do I pick? Um, options abound everywhere. I don't buy anything. You guys don't buy anything unless it has five-star review on Amazon. Um, it's how it goes. We want options. We want details about our choices, and everything is a choice. And it's easy to point to the world out there and be like, wow, the world's full of choices. And, you know, hey, you had four choices of when you could come to church this morning. You have 12 choices of which uh, small group you want to be a part of. You have three choices of how you want to contribute your tithes and offerings to the church. So it's not just about what's out there, and options aren't all bad. It's a wonderful thing. But what we have to be careful about that in a culture where options are the highest goal, the proliferation of options, is that it suddenly becomes about me. It's about my choice. This is about me and me having the option and the capacity to choose. And so there's a way in which this warps back into an understanding about who I am. 
So if you listen to this, and these are the categories, these are in the book, you can, you can get um, out uh, afterwards. So if you can't write these down, um, don't worry about it, you can get them later. But he, here are the things that Vince and Ravi are talking about that, it, that function in our culture. And here are the big six isms that they say create these cross pressures in our lives. So the, the, fact, of, the fact that we live in this uh, world of options means that it's not just like eggs and rental cars and church time. It's that you have a belief of religious systems also. The structure of your belief is fundamentally different. It's a new way of believing. A hundred years ago, maybe, if you lived in this part of Pennsylvania, maybe everybody went to church and you were never challenged in your belief. It's just what everybody did. That's no longer the case. On a daily basis, you're interacting with people from other parts of the world, other religions, people who doubt what you believe, and so you're consistently and constantly articulating your faith, defining what you believe, arguing for what you believe. It's always in tension with the world around you. There's no comfort zone. And so the structure of the way that you believe Christian things, though you believe the same things that the church has always believed, the way that you hold them is different because they're in constant tension. And these things that are crowding up against us and that we must consistently be responding to are these six things according to Vince and Ravi. And so here's the first one. Atheism. There is no God. I don't know if you've ever run across that thought or not. Probably. Scientism. Science disproves God or science can explain everything. The third one is pluralism. Uh, multiple things are true. All religions are equal. The fourth one is humanism. I don't need God. Man is the measure of all things. I've got this. I can decide for myself. I'm the master of my own destiny. Relativism. Well, that's true for you, but it's not true for me. And then finally, hedonism, which makes arguments that start like, well, I feel. And how I feel somehow becomes uh, a metric for truth. And so those are the six things that they point out that are um, voices that speak into our culture that are challenges to our faith. And you can see that within them, all of them are a little bit about me. So probably we could reduce this down and say, if you wanted kind of one general category of this, it's, if you wanted one ism to sum up these other isms, it's narcissism. And if you remember your Greek uh, mythology or your Roman mythology and the story of Narcissus, who was just this dashingly good-looking young dude, right? And everybody fell in love with him, uh, and he's kind of spurned the love of some others, and I don't, it depends on which version you read. Anyway, he ends up walking along and looking and seeing his reflection in a pool of water, and is like, man, that is one good-looking dude. And he falls in love with himself. And since he can't have the object of his desire, he just kind of wilts away and dies there. Now, I'm told that if you grow a beard, that can never happen to you. And so it's better to be safe than sorry is my, is my theory there. But it's that, that desire like that you are the object of your desire and it's all about you and your infatuation with yourself is what we call narcissism. It's all about me. So atheism does that, right? There's no authority outside of myself. Relativism does that. I'm the main authority here. Pluralism does that. I'm the main authority here. Scientism is just about the material me. Hedonism, it's about how I feel. It's the me, 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 me. It all comes back to me. And so narcissism almost literally puts the me in meaning. I'm the master of my own destiny. It's all about me. Now, you've probably never met somebody like that in this world, um, but just to let you know, they're out there. Uh, actually, there are probably a couple hundred of them in this room. And the challenge to this is, is that within our faith, the question is, is, who is influencing whom here? Is Christ influencing culture, or is culture influencing the church? How does this have a bearing on how we uh, relate to God, 
and relate to others. And this is where Jesus kind of pokes back at the Pharisees because they're like, hey, you show us a sign from heaven and then we'll decide. We want to see another option. And it's funny to see that in them. But you know what? I kind of do the same thing when I pray sometimes. Have you ever done this one? Like, well, Lord, I'm interested in what your will is for my life. Here are three things I think I should do. What do you think? I'd like to have four options. And then I'll choose out of one of those four of what you want me to do. It's funny except for the fact that it isn't. Because that's not really how it works. And so when the Pharisees ask Jesus for a sign, they're saying, hey, give us an option and then we'll decide who you are. We will decide who you are. And Jesus responds to them in a very blunt way. He says, only an evil, adulterous generation would demand a miraculous sign, but the only sign I will give them is the sign of the prophet Jonah. And then Jesus left them in one way. An evil and adulterous generation. Jesus is not as warm and fuzzy as everybody makes him sound. I mean, he is... uh, He would get some thumbs down on social media. An evil and adulterous generation. Why are they evil? They've taken the God-given gifts and capacities and abilities that he has given them and able to be able to discern what is good and weaponize that to put themselves in the position of authority that will judge who God is rather than praise him. Why are they an adulterous people? Because they're committing with their mouths to saying we're the people of God, but yet aren't committed with their lives to anything that remotely resembles what God wants for them. And so Jesus is countercultural. His claims are countercultural because he rips through this idea that there are multiple options in the world for me to choose from. And the resurrection does this. He says, no sign will be given to them except the sign of Jonah. That the resurrection, just as Jonah was in the belly of the earth for three days, or the belly of the fish for three days, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth for three days. And he talks about his resurrection. He said, no sign will be given except the resurrection. And if you think about it, the resurrection of Jesus Christ ruptures all of the isms. If God raised Jesus from the dead, then atheism isn't true. If God raised Jesus from the dead and a human is the type of thing that can come back from the dead, then scientism isn't true. Pluralism isn't true. Our definition of humanity isn't true. Our definition of relativism and truth isn't right. Hedonism, how I feel, has no bearing on reality. The resurrection of Jesus ruptures these isms and calls me to see that I don't have multiple options. I have two options. It's a demand for my obedience, not an offer of options. Jesus says, I'm the one who's in charge here. You're conforming to me in a, and accepting reality as I give it. Just, I mean, think about this. I tell my kids, go to bed. And they say, we want to see a sign from heaven. Um, no, that's not how this game works. Um, and Jesus is doing that to the Pharisees. No. This is not about me jumping through your hoops or performing for you. This is about you coming to grips with with what I've already given you. Jesus says, I move. And God does come to us. It's incarnation. It's the story of Jesus. It's the story of Christmas. It's why we get pumped about divine revelation because God does come to us. But at some point, he comes to us and says, and they're like, we want more. No, it's your move. And it gets flipped back around. And if we're not careful, this, this idea of the options of the world creeps into the way that we approach Jesus And probably the best illustration that pops to my mind is there was a a guy in Cambridge, England, way back in the day. His name was Hobson, and he owned um, a stable. And so if you're traveling, you needed a horse. It's kind of like Uber, except way different. Um, You would go to Hobson to get a horse, and as you walked into his stable, there were 40 stalls of horses. And so when you go in, you think, this is great. I have 40 options. I have 40 different horses to pick from. Except in his stable, there was a rule that you had to take the horse that was in the stall that was closest to the door. Take it or leave it. And that way people didn't pick, you know, certain horses and wear them out, but there was evil, even distribution across that. 
And so you had one choice. It looked like you had a lot of choices, but you only had one choice. You take the one closest to the door or you leave it. Looks like lots of options, but there aren't. And Jesus does the exact same thing to us in a pluralistic, relativistic, hedonistic, atheistic society. It looks like there are a lot of options, but there aren't. No sign will be given except the sign of Joseph, or the sign of Jonah. Either Jesus rose from the dead, or he didn't. Over to you. Either you believe in him, and confess him, and are committed to him, and you repent, and you be baptized, or you don't. That's it. There aren't 8,000 options here. There are two. And Jesus leaves us hanging with that challenge. That's why Christ is countercultural. We don't really necessarily like that. I mean, how many Amazon star reviews does Jesus have? You've got to deal with him as he shows himself to us, not as we wish him to be. Like the old Calvin and Hobbes cartoon where Calvin tells his mom, I choose to reject your reality and insert my own. I love that line, uh, but it doesn't work. And Jesus is just saying, hey, we're bumping up into reality here. It looks like there are lots of options in the world, but you need to choose. It's your move. And so as you do this study and you look at all the stuff that's happening in the world and the different ideas that are out there, remember, it starts in your heart. Yeah, they're the isms of culture, but they're the isms within you too. And I have the gift or misfortune of having the middle name David. So my name is Nathan David. That means I have the conflicting prophet and king all in one name. So every time I'm about to rail down on the world, God gives me a little in the back of the head and says, you know what, you've got some of that in you too. And that's my challenge for you this morning. As you go into looking at the countercultural claims of Christ, that we recognize that there is, the structure of Christian belief in the 21st century is different than it has been at any time. And there are uh, difficulties there, but they're not insurmountable. But overcoming them starts with looking at the call of Christ. It starts with your relationship with Jesus. And just as Jesus gives the Pharisees and the Sadducees and his disciples, and as he has throughout all time, he gives you that choice today also, and me that choice today also. Am I going to see my life about me, or is it about God? Is it about God revealing himself to us through the person and the work of Jesus Christ? And so Jesus says this. What is his invitation? He says, come unto me. Which me in that phrase moves? We move to him. We conform to the reality because the one who made that reality invites us to come to it. It's not the other way around. And so that's a challenge for me this morning is just to reset my soul a little bit and to remember that I come unto him. He doesn't dance to my tune. And so that's the invitation that I want to leave you with this morning also that if if you haven't made that clarity, if you haven't stated that publicly in your mind yet, yes, here are the two options that I have. Not choosing is a choice. I either take it or I leave it. That if you haven't done that and you want to do that and God's been speaking to you over the last weeks and months and years of your life and you want to, now's the time to do that. But also, if you just need to clarify that in your mind, this morning is a time as we pray and as we worship for resetting our hearts in that posture too of saying, I come to you, not you warp your character to be like me. And so that's the invitation of Christ that we start with as we come into trying to understand the world around us. It's a sweet invitation. It's deep and it's rich and it's full and it's stabilizing and it gives us hope. And there's tremendous blessing and opportunity and joy and laughter and uh, grinning that goes with following a character like Jesus. 
And so may I, in closing this morning, simply recommend to you the person of Jesus Christ as you try to make sense of this world and as you try to make sense of your heart.